Um, so let me ask a question. When I, when I say fulfillment, or I say the word, like I, if someone asks you, are you fulfilled? Or if you hear something has been fulfilling, what comes to mind for you? Just some, think for a sec. You don't have to answer necessarily. Uh, you know, I might be realizing like a, a childhood dream of yours. I had a dream as a child to be a firefighter. Where's Blake? Where'd Blake go? He was here, but then he left. You know, he's my hero. So um, it might mean something that has uh, work that has meaning. So, you know, there's work there or a relationship that is significant to you. It might just mean that Amazon, their fulfillment center has done their job and now you can celebrate Christmas. Like you got your Christmas presents. So what is fulfillment made of? What is it made of? That's a question I want to invite us to think about for a moment. Uh, Emily Fox Gordon, she's an author, columnist. She wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2014 um, with that same question. And she says this, what's fulfillment made of? Well, mostly relief. At 66, I suppose I just got in under the wire because a failed life can't be a fulfilled life. It has to be a life of success, though not necessarily the documentable kind. It can be a parental or marital or civic success or an entirely private success. Even a life of silent contemplation might qualify as fulfillment, she says. And then she goes on. But success is only one necessary condition. A life of brilliant accomplishment that ends at 40 can't have been a fulfilled life. Years are a requirement, she says. And then she says this one thing, which I think is very interesting. One must have lived most of standard, a standard lifetime and be inclined to assess it in order to be fulfilled. One must have lived most of a standard lifetime and be inclined to assess it in order to be fulfilled. Success, accomplishment, longevity, these are the things, according to Fox Gordon, that are the aspects of a fulfilled life. And so... The question this morning becomes for us, what does this have to do with Advent, Christmas, and this text in front of us today? And um, the text we're actually going to look at comes right after the story, the the standard Christmas story that Janelle read for us, which, um, you know, you heard the story of the Magi and all that, but just after that, Matthew, he notes that the events events of the flight to Egypt— we're going to look at this morning, um, the death of the innocents, these children that Herod um, murders in, in, in uh, Israel, and then the return by the, the, whole, the first family uh, to Nazareth. All of these, uh, Matthew says, are fulfillments of what was planned, what said must happen. Three different times in the, that passage, if you looked at it, starting in verse 13, going to th- verse 23, what we're going to look at this morning, um, Matthew says this was fulfilled, something was fulfilled. Which should beg the question, how? You think of those events. You know, Jesus begins his life as a refugee. Uh, they say, they, they estimate about 30 children at the age of two were killed in cold blood by Herod just after his birth. And then uh, they have to return to Nazareth. We'll unpack that in a moment, what that means. But how does that, taking uh, Fox Gordon's definition of fulfillment, how does that qualifies fulfillment. There's, there's not success there. There's not longevity there. There's not accomplishment. There, there are no glad tidings of great joy, as our songs like to say, in this story. So what's that about? Like, why is that story even there in the first place? It seems like it, it was inserted. Why do we even need to know it in the midst of a Christmas season? It's indeed a really disturbing story that I'm guessing you've never heard someone talk about in this context. 
Well, the Protestant reformer, um, John Calvin, once put it this way, that the Bible means what it means, not what it says. The Bible means what it means, not what it says. And I, and I think that's a fairly helpful way of putting it. Like there are sometimes things written between the lines of Scripture that we just don't read in black and white there. And that's our job as interpreters and, and readers in the 21st century is to, is to listen carefully enough, to look closely enough, and pay enough attention at these types of stories, especially those that trouble us, and kind of get us a little bit, that we might discern what's being actually spoken and taught together, okay? So there's something in the darkness of that story, the darkness of our lives. If you just zoom it out a little bit, whatever darkness you might be facing, uh, dissonance, something that of God's story for us in there and what, what that means for our lives. So that's what it means when Matthew says three times in this passage we're gonna look at, and so was fulfilled, okay? So this morning, as we approach this text, I'd like to invite us to explore it in those terms, asking what the dark story of the flight to Egypt and the death in the innocence teaches us about God's big story. And we're going to do that by tracing three storylines. So again, have your scripture, your Bible open. You can do it on your, as I say, sometimes your app or your lap. So feel free to have a phone or a device out or a Bible. It's going to be uh, Matthew 2, verses 16 to 23 we're going to, we're going to look at today. And we'll look at the story of Herod and the nature of the human heart. We're going to look at the story of Nazareth and the nature of salvation, and then we're going to look at the story of Egypt and the nature of hope, okay? So we're going to look at the human heart, salvation, and hope, and these three different storylines, okay? So first, the story of Herod and the nature of the human heart. This is in verse 16. I'll read this for us, where, where it says that uh, we're told that Herod, realizing he'd been outwitted by the Magi, so the Magi, you know that story, he became so furious that he gave the order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in, in its vicinity under the age of two. So it's important to know this verse is that reference back to this early part of Matthew 2 and that famous Christmas text we heard, the story of the wise men. They come out of the east to Jerusalem saying, um, where's this new king that's been born? We saw his star rise and we've come to worship him, Matthew 2, 12, or 2, 1 to 2, I'm sorry. And so if you know that story, Herod has been appointed by Caesar as the king over Judea. And... Uh, So he's like a new king. (laughs) Interesting. So he summons these uh, wise men, astrologers essentially, out of the east. And he says, hey, where's this king from? I'd like to know. So, you know, and, and, and they suggest Bethlehem. They point to Bethlehem. This is where we think he is. And he appoints them to go ahead of him, find out where he is, what house is he in, what neighborhood. So he says uh, that he can go in there, Bethlehem, and worship him himself, right? And of course, the wise men get wise. (laughs) They realize that's not his intention at all. And uh, so they return to their homelands in Matthew 2.12 by another way. They don't go back to Jerusalem. And so we stumble into, in verse 16, it says literally that Herod is furious. We stumble into into Herod's fury. He's so enraged at these wise men and that they've outwitted him (laughs) and that he orders the massacre of the innocents, 30 young boys, in the town of Bethlehem. And it's an, off, it's an awful story. Uh, it's not the thing of Christmas stories. We wouldn't tell that story with all your kids in the room. Um, it's unpleasant to read. It's very sad. But here's the deal. I don't want us this morning to be distracted by it, or by Herod, or by the fact that he's a tyrant. I mean, he is. He's a tyrant. We know from history that Herod did this, thing, this sort of thing all the time. All the time. He, he engaged in this sort of cruelty and barbarity a lot. You can read stories about it. But, 
And there have been Herods throughout history, lots of Herods. Leopold, king of the Belgians, who, who killed half the population of the Congo when he had it as his own colony. Uh, the Khmer Rouge, Hitler, Stalin. There have been countless Herods throughout history. And we hear that and we say, well, that's just the way the world is, right? It's um, these tyrannical ancient kings or these modern tyrants of our day. There's, this is a cruel place. Um, we just need to learn to sort of deal with it, right? Just kind of be the best people we can be in the midst of a really dark world. I don't think that's the only reason, or even really the main reason Matthew places this story in this text. It's not a lesson in sort of how to kind of just grin and bear it. Um, and especially in the context of this beautiful birth story of Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. And I think Herod represents something, actually. He's a type. Something that's deeper, something that is more insidious, something that's actually within our hearts. So if you go again to the first part of this chapter that we read, the wise men come to Jerusalem saying, where is the one who's been born king? And like I referenced, Herod's the king. So in verse three, it says that Herod, who's king, was deeply disturbed. So he gets furious, but he's first deeply disturbed. So here's what's happening. If you're the prime minister of a country, you're, or you're the president, I don't want to get too political here, and you walk in one day into your office and you see someone else at your desk. New president, new prime minister. Uh, someone who's subverted your authority. Or let's just say you're the CEO. Uh, and the board decides one day, closed meeting, executive session, to appoint a new CEO. Or if you're the king, Herod, you discover someone has been appo- someone's appointed another king, they, they've laid claim to your throne, Game of Thrones style, right? How do you feel? Like, how are you going to respond? Some of you are smirking. You're going to be disturbed, just like Herod. You're going to get angry, probably. You're going to push back. You might even get hostile, right? Just like he does. And why? Because your authority has now been challenged, right? You have authority. It's been challenged. Your position and your power have been subverted by somebody else or people, some people. Your place in that society or that system, that organization no longer is clear. You have, no longer have a seat at the table, we like to say. You, 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 don't, you don't matter anymore. You might feel threatened by that change. Um, so you see, it's how deeply threatening Jesus is to Herod. He's the king. He's the new king. It doesn't matter that he's a baby. And see, what the Bible says, and this is very important for us, friends, to really to understand, is, is that's how we are, this is Romans 8, naturally toward God. In our human nature, we're naturally threatened by God, and in particular by Jesus, because Jesus claims to be a king. He's not just a rabbi. He never claimed to just be a rabbi. People call him that. He's not some cosmic buddy like my friend Jesus. I mean, some of us, we talk about that, but friendship with God is good. He's certainly not just a nine-pound, six-ounce baby, Ricky Bobby style. He's not that. He's the promised and coming king, and we don't want a king. Not naturally, not really. Like, we, we want a baby. <laughs> We'd like a rabbi. We want a friend, but a king? Oh, not really. Not that much. This is why in 1 Samuel 8, Israel comes to the prophet Samuel. You might know this story. And they have a, a serious ancient Near Eastern case of FOMO. Hey, they say, Samuel, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. And uh, we want to, we want to, we want to give us a king. And that's why Samuel, he goes to God. He's a little bummed, to be honest, because he's, 
He's been leading Israel himself for quite a while, very well, actually. And he says, God, they want a king. And, and, and this, you remember what God says to him? He says, he says this in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 to 9. Give them what they want, Samuel. Because, you know, they're not just rejecting you, though you feel like that. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. I've been their king all this time. They don't, but they don't want a king. They want a puppet king. But in reality, they don't want a king over their lives. They want a king over their hearts. They don't want someone in charge. They want to do it themselves. This is Israel's story through and through. Uh, and see, the Bible tells us that, 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 that Herod is more than just a lesson in history. He's a lesson in human nature and the human heart. <laughs> uh, Herod is us. That's why Herod is in the Christmas story. Herod, there's something of Herod in each one of us. Something that doesn't want a king over our hearts. We sing that King of My Heart song, but there's something that doesn't really agree with that theology. Something that doesn't want God over our lives. It's something that just wants to be our own God. That will call God up at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning and say, God, I want to talk to you about something. But the rest of the week, functionally, I'm just putting myself in your shoes or my shoes. Maybe you're in my shoes. This is how I live. You know, I'm not asking God what he thinks. I'm not saying, God, where do you want to go? Hey, God, how should I do this? In uh, all of us, there's a little hair. Dale Bruner, who is a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, he says it this way. Hair is not merely the gospel villain. He is every man or every woman. Hair teaches us that the reaction of raw human nature, the kingship of Jesus, is rebellion. If Jesus is Lord, then we're not. And thus, Herod, though an extreme case, is not an isolated case. Herod is what I am deep down inside. Herod is what I am deep down inside. So you see at the main point of Herod, Herod's not dead. <laughs> Herod lives on in each one of us, in our exaggerated ambitions, our pretense, our self-centeredness, our partisanship, um, our grudges, our cynicism, our apathy. And in some cases, this may not be you and me, but in some cases, our, our human cruelty. We can be cruel. Humans can be cruel to each other because there's a little Herod in each one of us. Um, Herod's, there's a warning just a, and a reminder of our need for Jesus. We need a Savior today. Not just, this is why we continue to celebrate Christmas 2,000 years after the fact. It's not like Jesus needs 2,000 years of birthdays. It's that uh, we need a joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her what? King. We need to receive a king, each one of us. And that's the first lesson. Christ is the king who's come to be king over our lives. Here's the second lesson, which is the story of Nazareth and how it reveals the nature of salvation. So at the end of that passage, this part where Matthew tells us in verse 23 that the Magi, or I'm sorry, that um, Mary and Joseph and Jesus went out and they lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Do you know the significance of that? Have you thought about that before? We just think Jesus of Nazareth. That's just given. Um, Here's the significance. Joseph didn't want to live in Nazareth. Never. Nazareth is in the northern part of Israel. That'd be like eastern Washington. Or, you know, Fresno, California, or whatever. I don't know. Richard always talks about Fresno. I've never been, but he says it's apparently terrible. Anybody from Fresno? Yeah, so you know. You live in Seattle now. Like, in returning to his homeland from Egypt, Joseph would have wanted to return to Bethlehem, or Jerusalem. Bethlehem, because that's the city of David. Jerusalem, because that's the city of power. 
in the South, places filled with opportunity. And for various reasons, he didn't get to do that. He's forced to settle in Nazareth, northern part. Nazareth is nowhere. It's the middle of nowhere, utterly insignificant. This is why in John 1, for example, in John 1, 46, Philip, who's a first follower of Jesus, comes to his friend Nathaniel and says, hey, Nathaniel, I want you to come meet this guy. I think you're really going to vibe on this guy. He's really cool, and I think he'd be the Messiah. Do you remember what Nathaniel says to Philip? Verse 46 of John 1, that famous line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything? And that's actually pretty reasonable to say, because if you know your Old Testament, which you probably don't, (laughs) maybe you didn't, I didn't know this until now, Nazareth is not amongst any of the prophecies of the Messiah. Not one. Check it out. There's not a single prophecy in, in the Old Testament, in the prophetic canon, that mentions Nazareth in relationship to Messiah. In fact, if you Google Nazareth in Old Testament, it's not there. Josephus, who's a, a historian of the ancient Near East, doesn't even mention Nazareth in all the cities of Galilee. It's not even on the map. <laughs> and so Nathaniel is speaking fairly accurately. It's very biblical, actually. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Messiah? Nazareth? They don't compute. And of course, the answer, he should, it should be no, never, because there's been no forecast of this previously. And why? Shoot, I did it again. Thanks. I busted my mic again. So. <laughs> in every society, including ours, there's a sort of pecking order of places. So if you want to be somebody, you know, places you come from or places if, you're, if you are somebody or places you go to if you want to be somebody, the New York Cities, the Los Angeles, the Washington, D.C.s, the Seattles in some respects. On the other hand, you have places like Nazareth that are literally nowhere. So I mentioned Spokane. I, went, I, I remember coming to Western Washington from Spokane. I grew up in Spokane. Um, I went to the University of Puget Sound, Tacoma. So there's a place right there. I just remember smelling Tacoma the first time, going, oh my gosh, what did I do? But anyway, I grew up in Spokane in my entire life. I grew up born and raised, never moved. And so Tacoma was the first place I lived outside Spokane. And I immediately, stepping onto campus in the fall, remember hearing from people all the names they'd given Spokane sort of derogatory name, things like Spokalahoma and Spovegas and Spokandyland are just my favorite, the can. The can. I mean, how would you like to be from the can? I'm from the can. And so is Jesus. That's the point. That's Nazareth. Like, God moved his family there, so Jesus would be called a Nazarene. <laughs> a Spokenite. A, what do you call somebody from Fresno? Fresnoian. I don't even know. God's, see, the point is God's working in places that the world doesn't expect and doesn't value, that the world doesn't see significance in, the, the Nazareths of our world. Uh, of all, in fact, of all the different texts about the origin stories of Jesus, where he comes from, all of them have that same theme. If you go to Matthew and Luke, we're told that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which is not a big urban cultural center. It's a little village. Jesus is born not in a comfortable home, but in a stable not, he's, he's in a feed trough. It's a feed trough, friends. <laughs> he wasn't surrounded by heads of state from Jerusalem. He's surrounded by shepherds who watch their flocks by night. Nobodies, social nobodies, outcasts. And yet, in the manger, in this inconspicuousness of his family of origin, uh, is the revealed to us the greatest royalness, kingliness that the world has ever seen. And in that apparent Weakness, the greatest strength in that apparent obscurity, the most historically changing event of all time. 
the birth and life of Jesus the Christ. And the key is nobody saw it coming. Not a single person. Nathaniel didn't see it coming. None of the prophets in the Old Testament saw it coming. I don't, Mary and Joseph didn't see it coming. It was off the map of the world. And, and why? Because that's how God's salvation works. Remember, Nazareth reveals to us the story of salvation. God loves to work in the world in ways that turn expectations of the world upside down, inside out, and topsy-turvy. That's just how God wants to save us. This is why God says in verse Corinthians 1, look carefully at your calling, friends. Look, at your, look carefully at your calling to Christ. Examine that. Since, by human standards, this is in verse 26 and following of, of 1 Corinthians 1, not many of us are or were deemed to be wise when we began following Jesus. Not many were considered powerful. Not many of you, if I could ask the room real quick, came from royalty. Who comes from royalty in this room? Maybe, maybe none of you. I mean, and, and so Paul says that, this very significant thing. He says after that, celebrate that fact. Don't deny it. Celebrate because that God selected the foolish of the world, which is you and me, <laughs> to bring to shame those who think they're wise. And likewise, he selected the world's weak, Jesus, to bring to disgrace those who think they're strong. He selected the common, the cast off, those who lack status, so he could invalidate the claims of those who think those things are actually significant. It's not significant where you came from, even though I just shared my story. It's really not that big of a deal. And he says this, credit God with your new situation. That's the point. Uh, That you're united with Jesus, the anointed one who came out of Nazareth by way of Bethlehem. He's God's wisdom for us. He's God's righteousness. He's God's holiness. He's God's redemption. That's what matters. That's why we celebrate Jesus of Nazareth. That's how God's salvation works. On the margins, in insignificance, in obscurity, in times and places of little consequence, those are the contexts God's salvation is at work in our lives, which is so incredibly vital for us to be looking at this season because it calls us to pay attention in a time like this, um, man, that is so divided and so there's so much negativity around just where you're from right now, red state, blue state. Where, who are you? Are you going to get around a table this Christmas with people and you're going to watch Saturday Night Live last night, you're just going to avoid that conversation like the plague, and we need to pay attention, not to that, but to, to what, watch for the salvation of God breaking into your life and our world in the cracks and the crevices, in the places you don't expect, in the people you least expect, in your Republican uncle, <laughs> in your super liberal grandfather. I mean, none of us have a super liberal grandfather, but you know, let's pretend. Um, where might God be calling you to pay closer attention to salvation this season? From where? Where's the Nazareth of your life? We all have one. And so are you willing to sort of just pay attention to that and God's showing up in that? So that's the story of Nazareth, which is the story of salvation. Here's the last thing. Uh, It's the story of Egypt and the revelation of God's hope. This is in the middle of this passage, verses 14 and 15. It says this, that Joseph got up, took the child, his mother, during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled. There's that word fulfillment. What the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Now, we read that, and that may not get your attention immediately as a thing that's super significant. It's certainly not point worthy. We should get just moved to the end. Uh, you probably said, well, this is telling us that there's this prophecy about the Messiah coming from Egypt, and maybe you're just about to tell me Jack didn't. <laughs> Actually did. Uh, that Jesus is brought out 
It must have been a prophecy somewhere in the Old Testament, so this is like narrative. But if you take the time, and I encourage you to do so sometime, go back to that verse. It's Hosea 11, verse 1. So there is a prophecy about this. And what you're going to find is immediately it's going to strike you. It's not talking about a Messiah. It's not even talking about a person. Hosea 11 talks about a nation, the nation of Israel. So Israel is often called God's son, singularly in the Old Testament, the son of God. God talks about Israel, the nation of Israel, as the son of God. In fact, if you look at that phrase out of Egypt and just look at that in a concordance sometime, it is all over the Old Testament. It's throughout the Old Testament, out of Egypt, out of Egypt, out of Egypt, which is a shorthand way of the Old Testament writers to tell us the story of Israel, their story of God delivering them from bondage, guiding them through their wandering years in the desert, uh, blessing them with his presence throughout that time, and then leading them into this new place called the Promised Land. It's out of Egypt that God does that. And it's all over the Old Testament. Out of Egypt, I'll call my son, Israel. That's out of Egypt, Israel is drawn and led by God, their good father. And so the question becomes this, why would Matthew read into that passage Jesus if it's not about the Messiah? He knew his Old Testament quite well. And why would he say that's about Jesus? How would, actually, I should say, how does Matthew appropriate that passage to Jesus is probably the better question. How is, is that appropriated to Jesus, and what's it supposed to mean? Well, you've heard me say this before. There's probably, there's at least, there's more than two, but there's at least two basic ways to read your Bible, and this is important for us, for us to understand. There's one way where you read it, and you see, it's a story about you, what you need to do. It's like an Aesop's fables. Here's someone who lived a good life, and they're going to show us how to live our lives. So here's David. He was, a, he was an amazing person, destined to be great, and yet he failed, utterly failed. Don't be a failure. <laughs> like, right? Or here's Esther. She was brave. She spoke truth to power. Be brave. You tell your daughters that, right? And so that's how we teach the Bible to our kids. We read that ourselves sometimes as lessons of how to live a good life. And I'll just tell you right now, if you read the Bible like that, you've heard me say this before, it will pulverize you. It will absolutely dis- crush you. Uh, Mark Twain, has, there's this old apocryphal story I once heard of him. He had this recurring anxious dream, nightmare, where he's lying in bed and there's this huge Bible pressing down on his chest every night. Wake up and sweat, so you can imagine. And that's one way to read the Bible. <laughs> like a set of stories to model your life to have her, but you have to know that if you approach reading the Bible that way, it will crush you. You cannot. This is why Jesus says, cast on me all your worries and cares my yoke is easy, it's, you know, it's like, it's utterly unsustainable to read the Bible as a story about you, what you need to do, how you need to live, um, which is why I think there's another way of reading the Bible, one that's not crushing, but that's liberating. So many of you are going to be familiar with this book, Jesus Storybook Bible. Some of you have gotten this from us. Um, we give this out to our families when you all dedicate um, your children here. So some of you have like three or four copies. <laughs> and um, it's a beautiful little book written by this woman named Sally Lloyd-Jones. She's a member at um, a church in New York City, Tim Keller, his church. And um, one of the main reasons we, we give this book out, see if I can do this without my little mic, is how it begins or how she begins it. Not, this is not part of the scripture. This is just her preface. <clears throat> Here's what she says. Some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling what you should and shouldn't do, like I already said. And the Bible does have some rules in it. Ten Commandments. The show how life works best. They're good. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he did or has done. 
Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. Uh, And there's a whole list of people up here in the pictures for kids to look at. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but what you'll soon find out if you read it is most of the people in the Bible weren't heroes at all. They made some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, they run. Sometimes they're downright mean. And then she goes on and says this really beautiful thing. The Bible's not a book of rules. It's not a book of heroes. The Bible's most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes back from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story. But a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, and everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's most of all a, a true story. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. It's, it's a, there are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big true story. The story of how God loves his children and has come to rescue them. Remember, this is out of, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Uh, it takes the whole Bible to tell this story, she says, and in the center there's a baby. Very center there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's the one piece in this puzzle, the piece that makes all the pieces fit together. And suddenly when you see him, you can see this beautiful picture. We want our kids to know that. We want ourselves to know that. That's why we, we give this out, to remind ourselves like, that this book is not a bunch of stories saying a bunch of different things about a live a good life, though that, that you could probably extract that. It's, it's a unified story about one thing, one person, and that thing that person's God's plan to rescue God's people by way of God's son. Jesus the Christ, born in Bethlehem, uh, raised in Nazareth, out of Egypt. That's the reason Matthew can read Jesus back in Hosea 11.1, because he sees that God's been about delivering his people all along, the whole time. He's committed to our deliverance, then and now. Again, like, God's not sending Jesus to Egypt so he can just prove a prophecy. Like, see, I said it, now it's done. God's showing us something that God's always done throughout history, which is to bring his people out of Egypt, out of their bondage, out of their slavery. That's just, this is just the next step in that story which is a journey and a step that's offered to you today. That's the thing. That's the reason for Christmas. That's the reason for this third candle. That's the reason for the sing and the reason you came to church. God's committed to your deliverance. God's committed to your freedom. God's committed to your rescue. You may not think you need rescue. Go back to point one. <laughs> There's a little Herod in you. And, and so God wants you to be liberated from anxiety. God wants you to be free from fear. God wants you to be rescued from the darkness of races or us from the racism and violence of our world. God is committed to our deliverance. Do you hear it? I'll end with this. Uh, the Presbyterian missionary, Kenneth Bailey, who's a longtime missionary in Lebanon in the 80s and 90s, he put it this way. Like those who lived in the Middle East in the 80s and 90s across the second half of the 20th century, including myself, experienced frequent warfare. In Lebanon, particularly, there were seven wars in a 35-year period. One lasted for 17 years. Can you imagine a war in your neighborhood for 17 years? Others were, were quick yet brutal. In all of them, people saw their friends and family killed by bullets, explosive, and all the horrors of modern war. And then he asked this question, how do people retain their faith in such conditions? How would you retain your faith in such conditions? And then he says this, one answer, here's one answer, is that they remember that both the Christmas story and the cross, we've kept our cross in here for a reason, that a mindless, bloody atrocity took place at the birth of Jesus. Um, And after reading that story, the reader is not, if you keep the cross in, in view, caught unaware by the human potential for terror. 
when it shows itself again in our time. See, at the beginning of the gospel and its conclusion, Matthew and all the authors present us pictures of the depth of evil <laughs> that Jesus came to redeem. Uh, this story heightens our awareness, he says, of the willingness on the part of God to expose himself to the total vulnerability which is at the heart of the incarnation. He becomes a vulnerable child. His life is at risk. Every turn of the page. And, and then Kenneth Bailey finishes this way. If the gospel can flourish in a world that produces slaughter of the innocents and the cross, then the gospel can flourish anywhere. The gospel can flourish here in our time. So might we learn from that testimony to take heart that this Christmas, the gospel can flourish in our context, in any time, in any place in our lives, because the gospel is a story of hope. It's the story of God sending his son in love to seek and save the lost. We're lost. A seeking and saving that has not ended. It is continuing today. Jesus desires to be born again into our lives. We just need to give him room. There was no room in the inn. <laughs> is there room in your life? Let's make room now, this Christmas, okay? I want to invite us in that sense to uh, make a little room. I'll invite our worship leaders up. And as we respond in worship, uh, just making room, I want to invite us to just pause and pray. And I'll guide us in prayer, but if you would just, uh, just quietly where you're at, you know, bow your heads and close your eyes. Don't worry, I'm not asking for a show of hands if you're a Herod or whatever. That's not happening. Let's, talk, let's just pray to God here for a moment. God, it is in quiet at this moment that we confess um, the Herod in our hearts. We do ask God that you would heal us in those places we're broken, where we might feel threatened by your authority and giving over our lives to you. God, we also ask right now, would you reveal the Nazareth in our lives, the place that's so uncomfortable we don't want to go there? whether that's a conversation or even a place. Father, finally, we thank you for the vulnerability of your birth. Thank you for our children who are now coming back. Remind us of that. God, would you remind us and why we rest in your vulnerability these next days. Um, God, might we find in the resting that when we're weak, where we feel weak, we truly begin to experience your strength. So we surrender to you, Lord. We thank you for Christmas. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.